UK nature can be incredible. Some of my favourite times I've spent in nature would be rambling in the Lake District. If you've listened to this series before, you'll know what's coming next. Just giving a tree a big old hug. That really can't be beaten, you know, friends. But what is sad to say is that we also know UK nature is massively under threat. In fact, the UK is one of the most nature-depleted countries in the world. From the loss of ancient woodland to polluted coastal waters, the plants and the animals that we share our home with are in decline and nature and us depend on them, which is why it's not only bad for our world, but it is bad for all of us too. It also means that those who are already missing out on nature from a lack of access or opportunity are going to be even more affected. Now, all these issues that I'm speaking about on more are explored in a brilliant brand new documentary on BBC iPlayer. You may have seen it. If not, where have you been? It's called Saving Our Wild Isles. It explores our relationship with nature and highlights some inspiring individuals, communities and farmers taking action to protect and restore the natural world. It has been co-produced by WWF, the RSPB and the National Trust, who have also recently launched their first major campaign together, calling for urgent action to halt the destruction of nature and help it recover. Now, where are my manners? My name is Kel Spellman, and in this very special episode of Call of the Wild, we have lined up some amazing guests to work out what needs to be done to save our wild isles. I am so delighted and very grateful to welcome on to Call of the Wild, Deborah Meaden, an investor, entrepreneur and dragon. We have Nadine Pereira, TV presenter, author, activist and co-founder of the incredible birdwatching collective Flock Together and Megan McCubbin, zoologist, conservationist and wildlife TV presenter. Welcome to Call of the Wild, everyone. Hello. Hello, hello. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Silence. Honestly, it's my pleasure. And of course, we're we're here talking around Wild Isles, which has been a brilliant series on the BBC that's been going on and kind of bringing everyone back home and reminding us of the nature and the wildlife we have here. Just a quick question to get us moving, Megan. When we are looking at nature in the UK, can you tell us what is happening? And don't worry about being bleak because we know it's it's not the most positive story at the moment. No, it's not the most positive story, but I feel it, the language needs to turn around so it becomes a positive one. In terms of the natural landscape in the UK, we are without a doubt one of the most nature depleted countries in the world and certainly within Europe. We go and look at our landscape, we get a get a train or you know we, we get a bus into the countryside and it all looks green and we see a few trees. And I constantly have to remind people all the time, green doesn't equal good. You know, I live in an area where there's a lot of plantations and it's very green, but there is no wildlife to be found in it. And it breaks my heart every time I have to walk through it. We live in a time where there is something that I think is possibly the most dangerous thing when it comes to the nature conservation. It's something called shifting baseline syndrome. And this is essentially a syndrome where every single generation becomes used to the current environmental norms. So every generation is used to the environment as the way it is. I can speak to my granddad and he can tell me that when he was growing up in Southampton, he used to hear nightingales at the back of his house. I can't imagine that. I know what a nightingale sounds like, but it's never something that I have experienced. And I, and I don't know if I hope that that will happen within my lifetime. I hope it does. But I'm unsure at the minute. I'm really unsure. 
My nan grew up with red squirrels in Norfolk. Now they're confined to the majority of Scotland and, and patches in, in northern England. You know, Merseyside is an example. So our, our nature is declining. We live in a time where over 60% of the UK population haven't seen a truly dark sky before because of light pollution. I think there's a lot of greenwashing going on. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what a wild landscape should look like because we don't know what it should look like. I don't, I haven't seen a healthy UK, but we're all in this together. And I think that's where I get hopeful is because there's some amazing people doing some incredible work. Um, you know, we see that with Saving Our Wild Isles, the episode that on iPlayer. There are some inspiring people. And as long as there are blackbirds singing, as long as there are spiny dogfish in the sea, as long as there are wild squirrels somewhere, nightingales somewhere, then for me, that's reason enough to hope. So whilst those animals are still here, I will always continue fighting for it. That's a beautifully said that. So, so nice, Megan. And Nadim, being someone who part of a big part of your work with Flock is being in nature. Have you tangibly noticed, though, what Megan is talking about, this nature depletion? You know, I know, it. you know, is it harder to find certain species of birds? Have you been to forests and you're seeing them landscapes change, being in it so much in the time you spend there? First of all, I can find birds anywhere. So no, we don't have that problem when we go out. <laughs> Second of all... No, if we're not you, though, if, 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 we're not if you. one were not gifted with the birding abilities of me, then yes, they would. <laughs> they would go out into nature. Um, but no, seriously, yes, we do notice that. So I think when we go out, we do notice that sometimes. And we have to be kind of, in a way, careful uh, about the the areas we do go out and, and, and watch these birds. But it's also an eye-opening experience for all of those that come. You know, for the past three or four months, we do walks every month. And there is something quite hard-hitting about when we do go out there expecting to see these birds and people are seeing all these green spaces. And as Megan said, it's just like, oh yeah, that's green, that's bright, that's great. But we see nothing. And people are like, yo, why aren't we seeing anything? And I think that, again, to just go to solutions, you look at somewhere like where I'm from, East London, Bro, who knows how many answers are in schools full of thousands of kids in under-supported areas that are just not being tapped into? How many answers have we missed over the past 30 years? I know very, very intelligent people from the backgrounds that I'm from. There's no doubt they're creative, but no one is communicating this space of the natural world, environmentalism, wildlife, etc. No one's communicating it to them. And that's mm. where I want to get in. That's where I want to get in. I want to be able to find the right language, find the right methods to communicate those two worlds with each other because I believe we can turn around the state of nature, the state of biodiversity very, very quickly if we're more diverse in our approach. Absolutely, absolutely. Deborah, for you, the, the business world and the natural world are maybe two things we'd necessarily go hand in hand, particularly at this moment. Can you remember a time where maybe it more did or has there always been a slight disconnect, do you feel, between the two? I think it's been disconnected for quite a long time because actually nature has been seen as something that gets in a way of a lot of the things that business wants to do. Um, now, I, I think business has really quickly got to grips with the whole net zero and environmental piece because business likes to see that's my target. This is how I can do it. You know, I'm used to speaking in this language. Now, I've seen a real shift in business um, in terms of talking about biodiversity, but I still feel it's in this place of not really understanding the part that it can play. You know, mm. okay, I hear it, 
you know, and my people care about it. My consumers are worried about it. And Wild Isles has really pumped this up. I cannot tell you the difference in the conversations I've had in the last few weeks because wow. suddenly they're having to pay attention because their customers are talking about it. And I literally see this, this look of fear on businesses' faces thinking, but what do we do? You know, and it's easy in some, you know, construction, you can say to construction, stop ripping out trees, stop, you know, bulldozing through swathes of the countryside. But, you know, no point saying just what you can't do. How actually do we live in this new environment in a really constructive way? So, yes, I still think it's disconnected. I am heartened by the conversations I'm having and, and it's come up really quickly. And when we're talking about particularly the UK, Deborah, and maybe purely from a business point of view, but also a personal one, how how have we ended up in this mess? Do you think? Well, we've been we've been at it a long time. You know, <laughs> we've we've been wiping out species for hundreds and thousands of years. What we now think of as apex predators, they're not apex predators. They would have had their predators. So we've just got really, really good at wiping species out and claiming a landscape as ours without any thought whatsoever of what that was ultimately going to do to humans. Now, I personally think species have a right to exist on their own. They're not there just to benefit me. But even if you didn't care about um, you know, species and wildlife, you should care about the fact that we can't survive without them. So I think it's been a very long time coming. But what I will say, and here is the really hopeful thing. So, and this is personal. We bought a sterile farm. We were in the middle of a load of sterile farmland. And we decided we've been here 15 years and we just literally just stopped spraying, took all of the fences down that were interrupting with the hare runs and the deer runs. And we just let nature do it. Saying not, you know, I, we had to get thistles. They're the first thing to come in, come back. But, you know, we had to help it a little bit. But my goodness, 15 years later, and, and actually we have got some good farmers around us as well. We've got some farmers who have joined in and they've come along, come along the journey. My goodness, the difference, if you just give nature some space and stop batting it on the head every single time it tries to to regenerate itself. You know, we have hordes of lapwing this year, which we haven't seen for years, because not only have we done this, but the farmers around us have said, okay, we'll leave our fields with stubble. And, we, you know, we understand the difference it makes. And, you know, lapwing, we probably haven't seen for five years, but we've seen hundreds of them. So, so give nature a break. It's surviving despite us but we are battering it into a corner that it might not be able to get out of. And if it can't survive, we can't survive. Yeah, so so I think it's such an important point that people do forget we are it and it is us. We are so intrinsically linked and our behaviour absolutely says otherwise at the moment. And speaking of that behaviour, Megan, I guess we also have to point out legislation's not been there to support nature and protect it. In fact, it's probably played a big role in, in decimating it. Yeah, um, we have a long way to go for our policy to catch up. Um, I, I'm very much of the thinking that we need to be updating policy and guidelines and restrictions based on current science. But the way that our policy system currently works is that once things are in law, they're in law. And that's that. There is no flexibility that when a new paper comes out, new studies come out uh, that suggest actually maybe we should be thinking slightly differently and doing things slightly differently. 
oh, well, we couldn't possibly do it because that would be illegal and we've got this law. But laws are man-made at the end of the day. And if we can't change them, then who can? Mm-hmm. Um, and it becomes really frustrating you know, to, to watch it happen because the progress for people and you know, ordinary people like you and me, like people are thinking a lot faster. They're trying to be more ethically conscious. They're trying to make good decisions for the environment. Um, but when you've got policies that are still labeling things incorrectly, like shark products are, are la- labeled as something else, palm oil is labeled as something else. It doesn't even give consumers the chance to be eco-friendly mm. because the policies are so far behind and it's happening too slowly at that level. And that's why I think as all individuals, we can do something and we are all important. But the most important tool that we all have in our repertoire is our voice. I want people to start talking to their politicians wherever they live, whether you know Scotland or the MPs in England, just talk, just use your voice, get comfortable in activism. I remember when I, I had a conversation with actually one of my university lecturers when I was leaving and they said, oh, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I want to be an activist and I want to campaign. And the look of like, not disgust, but like horror when I said the word activist really surprised me. And I think we need to reclaim that word because activist, for some reason, I don't get it, has this kind of connotation to it that you're going to be a troublemaker. But I'd argue that every living being that has an active impact on their environment is an activist. If you go out and feed the birds, you're an activist in some way. If you go out, you know, and listen to birdsong, if you go and join Flock Together, if you support a, a, a company that focuses on green and you buy products from a place where they're producing sustainable products, you're an activist. You're making a conscious choice as a consumer. So we are all activists in our own right. And activists can mean what it wants to be to us. It doesn't have to be hitting the streets. We can be activists in our own way and we need to reclaim that word and reclaim our voices. Yes, and that that's kind of also ties in with what you were saying, Deem, as well, that actually we seem to be shutting down people from conversations when it needs to be a conversation for everyone and anyone. And I know that's something that's been so important in your work, as you said at the start. We're talking about the effect it's had on nature. Are you seeing what this effect is having on people as well, Nadim? The fact that we have decimated the natural world and, and we can't see these things as freely. What effect have you noticed of that course. having on people? I mean, you just, I mean, look, it's very evident, and I'm sure the science will back this up. The statistics will back this up. You look at the figures of like mental health issues, like, for example, depression, anxiety, and all these things. I'm sure that this is higher in this part of the world than it is for most of them. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that the depletion of nature and the disconnect from the general population and nature has a lot to do with that. Yeah, And what I'll say is, when I was younger, going through a turbulent time let's call it yeah because it was struggling struggling in east london urban jungle all of that madness going on proper madness yeah felt like the world was caving in didn't really know what to do there took there came a time where i then left school at 15 years old 15 all my friends were in school And my mum, by that time, had moved me out to like suburban Essex, right? So I'm there in a little bit more of a green area. So while my friends are at school, I'm sat in this this forest, yeah, looking around. And this is how I fell into birding. This is how I fell into it. What I liked about that forest first and foremost, and that green space, was the fact that nothing around me was reminding me that I needed to produce something. No one asked me anything. No one, those trees weren't asking me for anything. 
a green woodpecker came and landed right in front of me. The most beautiful animal I had ever seen in the UK up until that point. If you don't know what a green woodpecker is, Google it now. Okay. <laughs> Bright green bird, red cat, black mask, beautiful. I had never seen anything so wonderful. And I, at that time, believed beautiful things only came to those who went down the conventional route of school. Nothing could be further from the truth. And just that small one moment in nature, let's not go on to the thousands of others I've had in the 15 years since then, really changed my life really changed my perspective. At a base level, it just allowed me to see there is beauty in the world that is right there for me that doesn't require me to jump through hoops for someone else, capitalising mm. off of my hard work. And I think that's the message I would communicate to everybody, especially the younger generation, but everybody as well. Just get out into that nature and see those moments and see for yourself the impact it will have on your mood throughout the day let alone if you sustain that habit and the effect it will have in years to come, four years to come. Really appreciate you sharing that as, as well, Nadeem. And I think it will be something that a lot of people can, you know, resonate with and, and connect with and do it. Deborah, let's bring business back into this. And I'm almost picking up on something Megan mentioned before as well, because legislation has played a big part. But I think it's fair to say that business has played a big part. I know you said there's positive things that are happening, but... It, it is fair to say, isn't it, business has played a part in it as well and maybe has necessarily not put the planet first. Well, absolutely. There was a time, I mean, hundreds of years ago, when people and business were more connected to nature because nature, mm. they understood the direct link between their lives. If it rained, or, or the sun on the crops or the rain, and, and then the Victorians came in and then thought they could dominate the whole landscape. <laughs> um, uh, and since then, I think business has, has put... I mean, I, I say profit... I don't like it when a business only talks about profit in terms of cash, because as far as I'm concerned, a profit is the outcome of a business. And, and it's up to you. The whole joy of running businesses or owning your own businesses is you can do with them what you want. And we need to be able to say, yes, we need to make money. Otherwise, we're not a business. But we want to have an impact on society. We want to help local communities. We want to make sure that nature isn't hurt. So, so business has to get itself to a place where it values nature and people because, mm. you know, nature does well, people does well. Um, and it can actually voice those and measure those and put them on equal footing. At the moment, actually, business isn't doing enough. So here's how I would classify business at the moment. It actually is doing quite a lot in terms of net zero. Net zero, I think, has been a big threat to nature. And I say that, that sounds really weird. But in this desire to drive towards net zero, it hasn't, it hasn't looked at the wider path, which is you can't get net zero without biodiversity. And net zero should have been defined in terms of nature. So businesses said, oh, I like that. I like net zero. I get and I understand that. I'll stop investing in fossil fuels and I'll do this, which is all fantastic stuff. But it ignores half of the story. So I think our job now is to say you can't get net zero without biodiversity. So so you need to get on board really, really quickly. But again, it's much easier to understand so we use renewables. We don't use fossil fuels. You know, we put LED lighting in. That's all the stuff that's very tangible and it's very easy for business to say, this is what I do. Biodiversity is harder because it's often down the chain. That's harder work. 
you know, mm-hmm. and they're kind of being allowed to get away with it because they're able to say, look how far we've gone towards getting carbon neutral. In the same way, we have committed to those net zero targets. We need to commit to biodiversity net gain targets. I know the construction industry now, they have to have 10% net gain, but those have got to be intelligent targets. They can't just be, well, we'll cut down 50 trees over there and we'll plant 100 over there. That isn't a level playing field. So it needs to be intelligent. And, And again, Megan, I love what you said there. Legislation is really important, but it's got to be flexible because we're learning all of the time what the issues are and how we need to readdress the laws that we're currently working with. You know, it's got to be more flexible than than we currently are. Having that full 360 holistic approach Mm. has got to be not just in business, I think in every industry is what we've got to be striving for. I couldn't agree more. Megan, nature can bounce back. And although you said some of those really sad stats there, actually, if we start doing some of these things we've just touched upon here, there is such a chance for the UK to maybe lead the way in bringing nature back and improving the health and quality of our natural world and in turn ourselves. Yeah, it astonishes me every single time there's an area which is either abandoned by people or given over to wildlife. And every single time within, you know, the space of even just, you know, a couple of weeks, you'll see some biodiversity come back. And then over time, that builds up into a functioning ecosystem and you've got a really healthy pocket of environment. It's just that we need multiple pockets with hopefully some bridges and some connection going on. We need connectivity between all of those different brilliant bits of habitat. But nature is resilient. It wants to recover If we are tolerant, and I think tolerant is a really key word, we have to be willing to share our space. We have to be willing to enhance and not overmanage. We as humans like to just go on in and manage everything to within an inch of its life. You know, we have to tell nature how it should be, but actually, no, we just we need to chill out. We need to take a chill pill and step back. Just let things happen. Because okay? nature was around long before us, and it will be long after we've gone extinct ourselves. And that's great. There is a lot of positive things that can happen. We've seen species recover. A small blue butterfly is an example of that, uh, which was released in in Gloucestershire. And we see things, you know, increase in in numbers all over the world. And we can see it here on our wild isles, just given the chance. I think some people get really put off from going out, but I don't know, Nadeem, whether you find this, but like coming out, if if you're kind of going out for bird watching, for example, and you can point out, oh, you know, there's a grey heron, there's, you know, a kingfisher, we've got a great tit over there. Oh, can you hear that that's the churring of a nightjar sometimes that can put people off because they feel like in order to love nature you have to know everything about it you have to be able to identify every species you see you have to be able to look for the evidence that it leaves and look at footprints and know what they are Uh, you know you have to be able to identify bird calls and all of that kind of stuff and that's great if you can but sometimes that comes with time and just because you don't know every bird species I hold my hands up. A black dot flying through the sky, I struggle with that. You know, birds up close, much better. (laughs) I'm willing to hold my hands up and admit that I don't know everything and that will never stop me from going out and enjoying it. So don't let not knowing something or being unsure of wildlife put you off. Just get out and just enjoy it. I definitely agree with that. I definitely agree with that. Um, If I saw a black dot fly through the sky, I could ID it, I'm just saying. (laughs) Can I come out with you? Seriously. (laughs) I'm joking. I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. I'm joking, I'm joking. Yeah, we should go out one day soon. I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet still. But bro, I'm I'm like, I coach under 12 kids at the moment. I've coached kids for five years football. I go out for laps. When we haven't got a game, we go, they're 12, you know. We take them on like a 5K run, yeah? Savage. Yeah, it's not, we love it. You know what? It's actually sick. Like, we go for a run all together and then we play football for like an hour afterwards. It's sick. But all the time on my runs, I'm like, 
what's that boys? We'll hear a green woodpecker call. They'd be like, green woodpecker. So there's always that chance to engage these guys with nature through their language, which is football, which is the premise that we're all there. So I'm saying in this space, in this conversation, in these approaches to secure biodiversity, we need to address our own lack of diversity in our approaches as well. You know, I feel like that's been a massive, massive issue. I just feel like there's so much space to explore in terms of how much fun we could have communicating this this space to a, a variety of, of listeners and viewers. I think it's it's exciting and I'm 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 very, very gassed. That is just my way of saying Sorry. excited. I'm gassed. <laughs> I'm gassed to explore this space and have fun communicating it to a, a people that I've not heard anything about it. I, 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 listen, and I'm gassed as well now, Nadine. Yes. <laughs> Gas up the things. And that is something that has popped up unanimously throughout all the series is trying to remind people that we may not feel like we do have that power but we absolutely do and as you say whether that's in spending conversations where you're spending your time all these little acts do add up and it's the perfect place actually this is my segue to introduce this brilliant initiative and campaign that's been going on for kind of over a year, a year and a half now, it's called the People's Plan for Nature and it, it's people coming together, creating a plan for nature. So I think we can hear some of that now. When in a group like this, I think we have got a certain amount of power. How to be able to go sea swimming all the time and to drink clean water and eat food that's not got no chemicals in it and that my son gets to do the same. As someone with a visual impairment, hearing sounds in nature is quite important to me because it just reminds me of how much life there is. We need to make an impact. We can only do that when everybody works in partnership along with the government. We have to make absolutely certain that they are going to put nature at the forefront. I want to see that title. I want to see that director of nature, minister of nature, some something that's absolutely specific. It's not how much power I have individually, it's how much power we have collectively. People power, the people's plan for nature. And for me, is one of my greatest sources of hope and inspiration. So Nadim, I know you were down, I think, at one of the assemblies as well. Could you just give us a little bit more information about it and, and what gets you so, are you ready? Gassed about it. Yes, yes. <laughs> nah, so I was, you're right, I was there for one of the assemblies. I was also there actually as part of the advisory panel during the design process of the of the campaign. And I think it's a fantastic initiative, really, really good initiative. Effectively, what it is, in a nutshell, is RSPB, WWF and National Trust all linked up, got together and engaged the community, presented the community with general outline of issues that we face as a country regarding the environment on many levels. We're talking like from down to community grassroots up to like legislation, all of those topics were, were covered, but breaking it down into ways that the public can understand because not everyone has been fortunate enough or not everyone was able enough or whatever to be highly educated on these subjects, breaking it down and then giving the power to the people to come up with their own solutions. And the inspiration I saw in that room was absolutely incredible because we had people from like 
not old. That's not the word I want to say. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? <laughs> it, is, it is the word you want to say, but I'm here, so you don't want to say it. People, okay, no, freedom pass users. Yeah, freedom pass users. That's what we're going to go with. Experienced, very experienced. That's the one. That's the one. That's there the you one. go. Experienced freedom pass users, yeah? And young people were all coming together. And that was actually one of the few spaces I saw where there's that generational connection, which is another important aspect to this story, sharing and handing down experiences. And there was a kid there that had no interest in nature before, but he managed to get pulled in somehow. And he was there contributing all of these great ideas, great answers. And it was just empowering to see an entire community together working in unison, working in unison. Um, and I think if the charities involved continue to do this kind of work, continue to engage, I think it's only going to get bigger and it's only going to bear more fruits, seriously. You don't think you can really understate the, the power of bringing people together, what that has and what it can do. And even you can actually go and see this, uh, the final plan that people have come up with, which then will then be put forward to governments. But there's stuff in there which includes nature at the heart of decision making, wanting a union for nature and a permanent assembly for nature. You might have heard it there on the Vox Pop. An actual role, a director for nature that is involved in all conversations, in all legislation when it's been coming about. Equitable access to nature is a human rights so important legislate minimum 12% of land in new build developments given over to nature i mean these these are just a few of the points there is there is a great pdf that you can go dig into uh, that i'd really implore you to do because as well it helps you feel a part of something and i think that's the other thing isn't it megan feeling a part of something like you have some form of power really can kind of galvanise you and really kind of give people the energy to kick on. None more so than, as you were saying earlier, Nadim, the youth voices. And and how important are those youth voices, Megan? And how do you think we can empower them as well to, to carry on doing the already brilliant work that they've done? Yeah, well, I, I, there's, lo there's lots of answers for that question. Um, I think that the younger generation are more empowered and more knowledgeable and they don't care about the rules. They don't care about the bits of paper and having to sit down and go have a, have a meeting about a meeting about a meeting about an action. They don't, they don't want to do that. I don't, I don't particularly want to do that anymore. Um, we've done that for long enough and it hasn't worked. Young people want action and they're willing to get stuck in and do it. I mean, I'm 28 and I'm talking about the generations below me because that's where the real fire is. There's a real fire for them to make a positive difference. I don't think there's been a generation which has been so passionate about standing up and using their voices. And I think there's multiple different reasons for that. I read a study, it was a really interesting study. It looked at basically why young people are, are have that fire and that desire to really tell what they want and not afraid to you know use their voices it's all basically to do with because it's their future you know when you look at older generations it's kind of this mentality somewhat of kind of climate change is really far away first of all it's important to say our brains uh, in terms of their physiology are really well they really struggle to understand really big problems like that we're used to making decisions every single day we make thousands of miniature decisions every single day but when it comes to giant concepts like climate change and biodiversity loss it's too big actually for our brains to really understand um, and it can be overwhelming. So what humans are very good at doing is just being like, nah, too big, 
not dealing with that today that can that can go away for a while um and that works if you know your immediate lifespan might mean that your house isn't going to get flooded or that you know you're not going to experience no nature and therefore no food you know you're not going to experience wildfires on your doorstep obviously around the world people are experiencing that but here in the UK not necessarily the same extremes yet and that's the key word but for young people but that is in their immediate future, potentially. That is a real reality of what's going to happen when they're in their, you know, 50s, 60s and 70s. And it's def- definitely a, a real reality for their children. So in terms of this study was basically just saying that concept of climate change and biodiversity loss is closer to home for younger generations. They see the changes that can be made. They see the solutions and they're just willing to get on with it. I'm going to stand right alongside people of my generation, people older than me, younger than me that want to make that change happen. Yeah, and I think we've all got to do all we can to to make sure they keep that fascination and have that passion and we don't let that light ever dull down and also empower them and give them the tools they need to make the difference because, as we've all said, they absolutely will make the difference. We've just got to make sure there's enough time and space for them. Finally, Deborah, bringing it to business as well, my question's in two parts and it'll sound like an obvious one but people do forget it can you tell us how much power people have as the consumer and the second part of the question is do you also think big business can also lobby governments because of the power and the money that they have and and how recognizable you know these are big brands that people trust you know do you think they can also do more by coming together and trying to put pressure on in certain areas So ultimately, all of the power lies with the consumer. All of the power lies with the consumer. I don't think the consumer always understands that. Um, And they are obviously susceptible to manipulation. So, you know, a little bit of marketing might be able to change the consumer's view. But, you know, once, once the consumer has decided something needs to change, then it has to change. And a business that doesn't get on board is doesn't know it yet, but they're in a lot of trouble. When it comes to businesses and the government, I think the important thing the important part the business plays, it can move faster. Um, And frankly, in a vacuum, and and there is a vacuum at the moment, you know, government isn't showing the leadership that it needs to lead. It's not moving fast enough. It isn't flexible enough. Business is having to do it itself. Now, that is good and it's bad. It's good because it can work faster. You know, literally decisions can be made. This is how we're going to behave from now on. but it doesn't, it means that all businesses are in a different place. They all will be taking a different view on what's important. They'll all be having their different priorities. And it's all disparate. And what we do know about nature is yes, it can it can spring up again in pockets, but its best chance is when you have a joined up natural structure, you know, when actually you've got joined up habitats and you've got a you know a, a, a joined up plan. So so it's it's better than nothing. Um, But it would be, I think, an awful lot better if government could provide a framework and actually, oddly enough, not overly regulatory, because you regulate too much. All you do, all business does is spends its life trying to work out, work around and, and box things in. It just needs to say, look, this is the baseline of what you need to do. And you need to do the right thing in your situation, because what might be right for an organization that is heavy on the waterfront might not be right for an organization that's worried about the soil. I think business has to have a level of flexibility driven by a consumer that says, don't lie to me. You tell me what damage you're doing. And a government that's offered a basic framework. And that is, you know, that's utopia. That's how we need to be. I'm going to go back to something Megan says. We do need to not to get generational about this. 
because you cannot let the older generation off the hook. The older generation have children and they have grandchildren. And I understand it's a study, but certainly when I talk to people, I'm 64, and when I talk to people of my age, they're as worried as anybody because it affects their families. But we have to be engaged across all of society. Uh, because also when you look at these big organizations, the decision makers in these big organizations, I'm sorry, but there are of the older generation. And if we don't place lots of responsibility onto them, then, you know, it, it ain't going to happen. So I think for me, we shouldn't be segmenting. I think Nadim's bang on with it. We need to speak in a different way to not just generations, but the whole diverse society. We all have different languages. We all have di different buttons to press. Nobody gets off the hook. You know, and, and everybody, I think, needs to be engaged. So I think we need to be careful to make sure that everybody does feel part of it. Do you know, I think on that note, I think, I mean, honestly, I could I could stay on here for, for another hour, but this has been, for me, and I'm not just saying it, one of the most engaging conversations. And I think the areas that we've covered will go pretty, pretty far and actually people listen to it, enlightening them, informing them, and hopefully engaging them enough to, to really come on board because at the heart of everything we've said is, look, we can turn things around, but we all have that role to play. And it can't be understated as well. I've, I've been a big fan of all your works and everything you're doing in the natural space for the planet and for the future so thank you for that and thank you for your time as well ah uh, thank you Kel. Mm -hmm. thank yes. you thank, thank you Deborah. Thank, thank you Morgan. thank you now if you've sat and listened to this episode and thought well, you know nature in the uk i think it needs to be put front and center of the discussion something that i feel and our guests definitely feel like well you can do that you can add your voice to the people's plan for nature using the link in the episode description or if you just search save our wild hours online you can find it on there and add your voice remember together we are stronger and together we can make a difference I also have to say a special thank you to some of the members of the People's Assembly for Nature we heard from earlier. So a massive thank you to Jody, a carer from Swansea, Pauline from South Queensferry, Phil, a retired train driver living in Peterborough, Claire, a retired GP from Downpatrick, Northern Ireland, and Joshua, a 17-year-old from Leeds. I've been Kel Spellman. Thank you so much for joining me and listening to this episode. Call of the Wild is a fresh air production. It's produced by Eva Higginbotham and Izzy Clark. The wild is calling. It's time to act. Peace and love. <laughs>